Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Pandemic is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash pandemic. Chapter 31 A Game of Tag Admiral Porter relayed the news, somehow keeping his voice as emotionless as that of a traffic reporter. Seismic readings indicate a nuclear detonation in south-central Russia. Approximately 20 megatons, believed to be of Chinese origin. Murray's stomach did flip-flops. A nuke. A goddamn nuke. It changed the game in every possible way. Not only was the world up against a disease that turned humanity against itself, the disease had apparently learned how to push the button. The staff of the Situation Room looked as sick as Murray felt. Everyone except for the Joint Chiefs and the President. Porter and the other generals exuded grim determination. Like it or not, this was their moment. Blackman just looked pissed. I don't understand, she said. This came out of nowhere. If it was an ICBM, we should have seen the launch. Porter nodded, took his customary pause before answering. That's because it wasn't an ICBM. Our guess is a Type 631 missile fired from a truck just south of the Russian border, between Kazakhstan and Mongolia. Truck-fired missile range is over 400 kilometers, enough to reach Omsk, Novosibirsk, or possibly Krasnoyarsk. Murray didn't know any of those cities. How big were they? Which one had been hit? Andrei Vogel pressed a finger to an earpiece in his right ear. He dabbed at his now constantly sweaty, bald head with a handkerchief. We've got a bird bringing up visuals on the region, he said. We should have satellite imagery on the big screen in a few seconds. The situation room fell silent. All heads turned to the monitor that showed fifteen American cities lit up in yellow, another eight in red. Smaller red and yellow spots dotted the country. Violence was radiating from the big cities, spilling out across the nation. The map of America blinked out, replaced by a high-angle view of a mushroom cloud billowing up over a glowing landscape. Murray saw the hallmarks of a major metroplex, a river cutting through the middle, clusters of tall buildings, roads snaking out to suburbs, then to forest and farmland. A single word at the bottom identified the city. Novosibirsk, Blackman said slowly and carefully, as if she wanted to respect the newly dead by properly pronouncing the name of their now-destroyed home. How many people? Admiral Porter answered her. Third largest city in Russia, behind Moscow and St. Petersburg. Population, 1.5 million. On the screen, the mushroom cloud continued to rise. Murray found himself wishing that this was a joke, the prank of some sick, twisted fuck. It wasn't. My God! Blackman said. This is really happening. She did her hands rubbing the face thing, then blinked rapidly, worked her jaws if trying to get a bad taste out of her mouth. Do we detect any other launches from the Chinese? Negative, Porter said. All ICBMs are still. The Chinese aren't warming anything up that we know of. It could have been a rogue element, 
possibly the truck crew was converted. They could have launched on their own. Vogel dabbed at his sweaty face with a sweat-soaked handkerchief. We've got full satellite coverage now. If there's another truck launch, we'll see it happen. Blackman laced her fingers together. She was trying to stay calm, to show confidence, but the fingers gripped too tightly, made the skin on the back of her hands wrinkle and pucker. Director Vogel, she said, I need you to find a way for me to talk to Beijing. Vogel leaned on the table. We're trying everything we can, Madam President. We're starting to get satellite images from China's largest cities. Several of them show major fires. Communication seems to be down all across the country. They can't talk to us. And far as we can tell, it looks like they can't even talk to each other. Blackman seemed to realize her hands were strangling each other. She extended her fingers, moved her hands apart, dropped them to her lap. Get me in touch with someone who can make decisions in China. And get Morisov on the line right now. Bodies scurried into motion. Hands picked up phones. At least four people jumped on the task of trying to reach Stepan Morozov, the president of Russia. Paris, a cinder. London in chaos. Gun battles in the streets of Berlin. Reports of converted wreaking havoc in South America, Northern Africa, India and Pakistan. Every continent felt the effects. All except for Australia, the leaders of which had been smart enough to shut down all travel three days earlier. Blackman turned to Porter. Admiral, what's the condition of the Seventh Fleet? Maybe Murray wasn't up on his Russian geography, but he, like everyone else in the room, knew exactly what Blackman was asking. The Seventh Fleet operated as a forward force near Japan, a constant presence of power, some sixty ships and three hundred aircraft strong. The Seventh was America's sheathed saber in that region. Seventh Fleet is at Redcon One, Porter said. They are prepared to defend any hostile action and are available for offensive operations. Blackman nodded her approval. Make sure Fleet Command knows they have clearance to shoot down anything that comes near them. From here on out, we err on the side of an international incident as opposed to losing even a single ship. Yes, Madam President, the Admiral said. He turned to his assistants, setting in motion another mini-flurry of activity. Vogel looked off, put his hand to his earpiece. He turned to Blackman. Madam President, we have President Morisov on the line. He called us. An assistant placed a red phone on the table in front of Blackman. It was an old-fashioned thing, a handset connected to the main phone by a curly cable. The hotline, a piece of equipment that for five decades had served as a last resort to stop nuclear war. Blackman took a deep breath. She picked up the handset. President Morisov, America expresses its deepest condolences at this tragedy. She paused, listening. Her eyes widened. Stepan, don't... Do this. That attack probably wasn't ordered by the government. China is dealing with the same problems you are. You know they wouldn't risk a war with Russia. If you retaliate, all you'll do is kill innocent people. She listened. Her eyes closed. That was it. Just her eyelids closing. And everyone in the room knew Morosov's answer. Blackman opened her eyes. They burned with anger and frustration. The United States objects in the strongest possible terms. 
The world is on the edge of collapse. This will push us even closer. There was a pause. Then she hung up the phone. Blackman took a moment. The room waited for her. She squared her shoulders and spoke. President Morisov feels compelled to retaliate. What will Russia's likely target be? Vogel rubbed at his bald scalp, rubbed hard. Probably a city comparable in size to Novosibirsk, he said. He tapped at his keyboard, glanced at the main monitor as he did. The closest Chinese city would probably be... Weirumqi. The image on the screen shifted, showing a city nested between three snow-capped mountain ranges. At the center, the word Weirumqi, spelled U-R-U-M-Q-I. If Murray hadn't heard Vogel say it, he would have had no idea how to pronounce it. Blackman nodded once, as if she knew the city of Weirumqi was the only obvious answer. And that city has 1.5 million people? Closer to 2.5 million, Vogel said. 3.5 in the prefecture, so the death toll would depend on what weapon the Russians use. Murray shook his head in amazement. 3.5 million. About the size of Los Angeles, America's second largest city. Blackman's hands clenched together again. The world's most powerful human being had no power at all to stop a massive slaughter. Admiral Porter, how would Russia strike that city? Tupolev bomber, Porter said. Likely a Tu-160 flying out of the Ingalls II airbase near Saratov. You can bet it's already in the air. It will launch a KH-55 cruise missile. Probable warhead yield of 200 kilotons. A series of concentric circles appeared on the screen, overlaying the city. The center circle was a bright red, surrounded by one in red-orange, which in turn was surrounded by orange, and finally a ring of yellow. More words appeared on the screen, showing districts or suburbs. Murray wasn't sure. Qidao Wan Zhang, Ergong Zhang, Zhenxi, Qianshan, Shaibak, and more. The names all fell within the bands of color. Murray didn't know those names, probably couldn't even pronounce them, but the names made everything more real. People lived in Jenshi. People lived in Qidao Wanjiang. People who were probably going to die. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. 
they will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Vogel turned to Admiral Porter, looked at all the Joint Chiefs. We have to do something, Vogel said. Do we have any resources in the area? A carrier? Anything? The Air Force Admiral started to speak, but Blackman cut him off. We do nothing, she said. Her voice was cold, unforgiving. If her heart felt anything, she refused to let those emotions reach her brain. Vogel looked shocked. But, Madam President, a strike could kill millions of people. We have to try to stop it. Blackman stared straight ahead. Russia has been attacked and will retaliate. If we try to intervene, we... Her voice trailed off. She closed her mouth, licked her lips. She gathered herself, continued. If we intervene, Russia could interpret that as an act of war. America is in dire straits. We can't risk doing anything that would put our troops in conflict and we cannot risk nuclear weapons being launched at our shores. Russia has the right to defend herself. Vogel slumped back into his chair. He was stunned, just like most of the people in the room, just like Murray. Wasn't the President of the United States supposed to be able to reach out and stop injustice? And yet, Murray knew Blackman was making the right call. If the USA stuck her nose in the middle of this fight... The next mushroom cloud might rise over Miami, Seattle, Phoenix, any number of American treasures. Blackman had no choice other than to make sure Russia didn't see the United States as an enemy. Admiral Porter cleared his throat. <clears throat> Madam President, if I may offer a suggestion. She waved her hand inward. Go ahead. We think the Chinese nuke was launched by a rogue element. However... It is also very possible that the government was testing Russia, seeing if the infection had impacted Russia's ability to respond to attack. Russia's ability has not been affected, which the Chinese are about to find out firsthand. Admiral Porter nodded. Of course. But if China actually was testing Russian resolve, their next test could be against us. We need to prepare our own retaliatory response. The Chinese, or whoever is running things there, will see us preparing for launch. They'll know the United States is ready to hit back. Three nuclear powers at play, inches away from an all-out exchange. If Murray had wondered how things could get any worse, now he knew. Vogel knocked twice on the table. Porter is right, he said. The Chinese will see us preparing. So will the Russians, just in case they get any bright ideas while they're lobbing nukes into China. Murray shook his head. Are you warmongering assholes really this obtuse? 
You want to make things worse by spinning up our birds? The admiral glared at him. Vogel chose to look elsewhere. The president raised a finger. Director Longworth, let's keep this civil. Sorry, Madam President. She turned back to Porter. Admiral, you're sure about this? You really think prepping for launch will be interpreted as a warning and not a threat? There was a gleam in the Admiral's eye. Maybe Murray was imagining that. But this man, all the Joint Chiefs for that matter, had spent a lifetime training and preparing for a situation this severe. China has already used a nuclear weapon, Porter said. Russia is about to do the same. The seal is broken, Madam President. It's a lot easier to justify the second strike than it is the first. Russia would launch at China. Maybe one of them would launch at America. And then America would launch at both, just to be sure. And then... Murray stood up. The action seemed to surprise the other people at the table. It even surprised him. This is what it wants, he said, the words rushing out. These people... The converted, they aren't monsters. They aren't zombies. The destruction of Paris made that clear. The bomb that hit Novosibirsk. If it wasn't the Chinese government, it wasn't truly rogue either. That was a calculated attack, because this disease wants to kill us all. Vogel, put our disease trucking numbers back on the screen. Vogel did so. Murray pointed at the top number. Sixty percent immunized. Soon to be 70, then 80. We're in the lead, and the other industrialized nations are close behind. Don't you see? We've stopped the spread. We'll have millions of infected to deal with, sure, but we've stopped the spread. The converted. They can watch the news just like we can. They know the score. We've checked the contagion, so now they're looking for other ways to take us out. We just so happen to have tens of thousands of other ways in the form of nuclear missiles. Don't you get it? We're beating them now because we're organized, because we have communication. If a nuclear shooting match starts, all that goes away. They want to destroy us. If they start a nuclear war, then we do their work for them. Vogel turned sharply. His hand shot to his earpiece. New information. The room hushed waited for him. Seismic readings indicate a 100 kiloton detonation in China, he said. Probable epicenter, Weirum Chi. Returning to satellite coverage. The main monitor switched back to the image of Weirum Chi. Only now the city couldn't be seen. A billowing mushroom cloud roiled up, blocking any view of the city center. The shockwave expanded out a ring of dirt and debris widening at supersonic speed. Blackman stood up, rested her hands on the table. She leaned forward, her predator's stare locked on the scene of mass destruction. Admiral Porter is right. We need to send a clear signal. We need to make sure the Russians and the Chinese know what will happen if they attack. Take us to DEFCON 2. Chapter 32 the streets of Chicago. It could have been an old west ghost town, complete with howling wind, skyscrapers in place of beat-up wooden shacks, snowdrifts instead of rolling tumbleweed, but it was just as desolate, just as empty. 
Some of the traffic lights were on. Some were off. Most buildings sat dark. A few random windows glowed against the darkening sky. Vehicles littered Michigan Avenue's six snow-swept lanes. Some of the cars, trucks, and buses looked fine, save for smashed-in windows and dented doors, while others were crumpled, knocked on their sides, or even resting upside down with snow accumulating on their upturned tires and dark underbellies. Many were burned-out husks, blackened and misshapen from long-dead fires. Light from the setting sun slipped through the packed gray clouds, reflected off the tall skyscrapers. Broken windows looked like missing teeth, black spots marring the smooth glass faces. Winter wind ate at Cooper and Sophia, cut into jeans and slacks, drove through coats to chill their bones and bellies. The snow kept falling, met in the sky by whirling bits of burned blackened paper. Everything smelled like a day-old campfire. Icy flakes melted against skin, stuck to hair, clung on Cooper's four-day stubble. So many dead. Blackened corpses sat inside of blackened cars. A cindered bus sagged from the heat that had scorched it. A scattering of five corpses spread out from its twisted door. People who made it out of the vehicle, but still succumbed to the flames. Bloated and frozen bodies lined the sidewalks lay between the ruined cars that filled and blocked the streets. It was as if God had picked up a graveyard, turned it upside down and rattled it, scattering the dead like a child dumping out a box of toys. Cooper began to hear occasional sounds through the wind, a clank of metal, distant tinkles of breaking glass, the screams of the hunted and gleeful cheers of the hunters. He stayed close to the buildings on the west side of the street, trying to be as inconspicuous as possible. Nothing came out to stop him, but he and Sophia weren't entirely alone. Here and there, Cooper saw the little pyramid-shaped monsters, sometimes scurrying across the street from one building to another, sometimes through ground-floor windows where they built their walls of solidified shit. He also saw flashes of movement from deep inside buildings, through smashed storefronts, and from behind windows higher up the towering buildings. He was being watched, watched by something bigger than the hatchlings. Cooper had carried Sophia North on Wabash and cut east on Hubbard. At Michigan Avenue, he looked south. The snow-covered Michigan Avenue bridge led over the Chicago River. He wondered if they should go that way instead, but Sophia tugged on his jacket to get his attention. She raised a shaking hand, pointed at a twenty-story building a half block up on the left. Fire had raged through the smooth glass tower, covering what windows remained with waving patterns of soot. At the bottom of the building, he saw a broken overhang that once had shielded Chicagoans from rain or snow. It, too, was twisted and blackened by the fire. A warped script W and one E were all that remained of brass letters that had spelled out Walgreens. Cooper's heart sank. He kept walking, kept carrying Sophia. Maybe the fire damage was only superficial. It wasn't. Nothing remained of the drugstore. Through broken and blackened glass, Cooper saw melted metal shelves and powdery paper ash. The smell of burned plastic poured out of the place as though it was still actively ablaze. Sophia shivered in his arms. Shit! Cooper nodded. I guess we go to the hospital next. Let me take a little rest. He looked around, saw a nearby car that had smashed into a bus. The car's windows remained unbroken. Intact. 
he carried Sophia over to it. He used the hand under her knees to open the driver's door, then bent, his back straining as he carefully set her on the driver's seat. His whole body seemed to sigh in relief. Sophia weighed all of a buck ten, not much to hold for a few moments, but an awful lot to carry across the city. I'm slowing you down, she said, her weak voice barely audible over the wind. Why are you doing this for me? He thought for a moment, searching for an answer. Because of my mom, he said finally. She'd want me to help you. A not-so-distant scream from behind, a woman's scream, echoing through the empty streets. Cooper looked back the way they had come, his hand moving on its own, reaching for the cold handle of the gun stuffed into his pants. Two long blocks away, he saw a woman at the base of the bridge. Her hands clutched to her shoulders, as if she was trying to compress herself, make herself too small to see. Chicago's skyscrapers rose up into the gray evening sky around her. She stood in the middle of the street, looking to her right, then turning right, then looking right again, then turning again, spinning in place in a stop-start motion. The wind blew snow at her, probably cutting right through her thin blouse. For a moment, Cooper wondered why she hadn't worn a coat. Didn't she know it was freezing outside? Before he realized she had probably fled some hiding spot, had run just to stay alive, he saw movement, two other people approaching the woman, a tall man wearing a red-down jacket and a woman wearing a blue snowsuit. They must have come out of the surrounding buildings. They closed in, and suddenly there were four more people, sliding out of ruined cars, walking through doorways. They had the woman surrounded. She kept turning, first her head, then her body. Don't just stand there, Cooper said quietly. Run! The woman didn't move. The six closed in on her. And then, on the bridge, coming from the south, through the falling snow and scattering bits of paper, Cooper saw something else. Something huge. He felt Sophia's fingers clutch tight at his jacket. The raw intensity of her words hit his ears like a siren, even though they were barely more than a whisper. What the f- fuck is that? Cooper? What the fuck is that? Cooper didn't know. Didn't want to know. It was a man. Maybe. Sickly yellow skin. No jacket. An upper body that was far too wide for legs that would be gigantic on anyone save for an NFL lineman. And the head. Cooper couldn't make out much other than a neck that was as wide as impossibly wide shoulders. A neck that led up to a face hidden behind a blue scarf wrapped around the mouth and nose. The woman let go of her own shoulders, finally turned to run, but it was too late. Six people grabbed her. She screamed and jerked, tried to fight, but the others held her fast. The man in the red jacket stood in front of her, reached into his coat, pulled out a long butcher knife. Cooper thought about drawing his gun, taking a shot. Maybe he could get lucky from this far out. And then it was too late. The man in the red jacket drove the knife into the woman's belly, slid it up like a butcher slaughtering a pig. The woman didn't even scream. She just stared, stared and 
twitched. Her attackers tore into her. Cooper saw hands driving down, yanking, ripping, saw those hands come back bloody and full of dangling intestines or steaming chunks of muscle. The five people started to eat. I am not seeing this. I am not fucking seeing this. A tug on his coat. Coop, Sophia said. Get me the hell out of here. He realized the gun was in his hand. He didn't remember actually drawing it. Yeah, let's go. He stuffed it once again into the back of his pants, then reached into the car for Sophia. Chapter 33 Tipping Point From his little table in the Coronado's cargo hold, Tim Feely studied the numbers. New York City, Minneapolis, Grand Rapids, and Chicago were no longer providing consumer data. They were too far gone for that. Elsewhere in the country, people were stocking up on whatever they could before it was too late. That panic skewed the consumer pattern information, but there was still enough data from which to draw conclusions. Philadelphia, 9,000% increase in cough suppressants. Lexington, huge spikes in purchases of fever reducer. Fayetteville, all stores sold out of pain relievers. The list went on and on. Most of Baltimore had lost power the day before, so there was no additional data to be had there. Indianapolis, Huntsville, and Birmingham were in the same boat. As near as Tim could tell, most cities on the eastern seaboard had significant outbreaks. The Midwest was even worse. The West Coast showed some signs of infected activity, but the overall stats indicated those populations were mostly normal. They'd brewed the inoculant faster there, distributed it better, done a superior job at overcoming local objections. Although murder rates had skyrocketed, police departments remained in control of the West Coast and the Southwest, except for Los Angeles. Riots and looting had cast L.A. into chaos. There was no information to discern if the violence came from the converted or if it had blown up due to the deaths that occurred because of the mayor's shoot-on-sight-after-dark curfew. Canada was also in bad shape. Montreal was ablaze, just like Paris. Tim didn't have consumer data on Europe, but news reports of burning cities and corpses littering the streets told the story just fine. Pandora's box had opened. Just like the myth, evil things had flown out to infect the world. In that myth, the last thing to escape had been hope. This time, Tim wondered if there was any hope at all. You have been listening to Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.